All right, we're going to go ahead and get started with this morning's announcements. I'm Michael Culpepper, and thank you for joining us so much at Denton North Church this morning. Our first announcement is the reoccurring uh, Child's Advocacy Center of Denton. Uh, for just $10, you can buy a little card that looks just like this in the back. And this is just saying, hey, I support the Children's Advocacy Center. And you or you know, someone you know, anyone who's struggling with abuse in the family or abuse outside of the family, whether it be children or other means, can go there and receive a level of free counseling. Um, so obviously, this affects just about all of America, and I'm sure we all know someone to some degree who has been affected by abuse. Um, so it's definitely a major way you can give. And again, that's right at the back for just $10. Um, the next announcement we have is Santa's snapshot. I'm gonna be passing around this clipboard for signups. This is on December 7th. I know this is a very busy day for our community. There is a wedding shower, a church leaders event later that afternoon, um, and a women's event that day. So if you're not already committed to one of those three events, we could really use some volunteers here. This is uh, at the MLK Rec Center, and essentially you're gonna be helping facilitate the taking of pictures with Santa, and you get to see a bunch of bright, cheery kids who are really gonna enjoy uh, your service and just that opportunity to take a picture with Santa if they never had that opportunity. Uh, lastly, this is the last Sunday of the month, so our offering will be a benevolence offering uh, this week. And to explain that, Tyrus is going to come up for us. Hello. This one? Cool. Great. Uh, hi. So uh, with benevolence, um, just know that uh, this is a... Oh, lost it again. I always do this. Uh, but it's just um, funds that uh, the church has uh, to help people uh, that are in need um, and... It is uh, things uh, along the lines of like helping someone like with a motel room that's like displaced from like wherever they were, or a short-term loan uh, for rent. Uh, like I've definitely uh, been blessed with benevolence because uh, there's sometimes where uh, I'm just like short on rent, uh, and definitely has helped me out. Uh, so in the offering basket, uh, there will be an envelope that you can uh, place money in. And can Leslie, can you, we um, like specify on the card reader? Uh, benevolence, or yes or no with that? Okay, awesome. Uh, so if you want to give uh, benevolence and you have a, a card, uh, just put a note that says benevolence or bin on it. Um, but yeah, that'd be really great. Uh, and I'll pray over the offering now. Uh, dear God, just thank you um, for all that you do. Uh, thank you for just bringing us here, God. Uh, I pray that as offering best goes around, uh, people will give uh, generously um, from the love that you have for them. Jesus, I pray, amen. Me or Ty me, Tyrus? No? Okay. Good morning. Good morning, morning. My name is Brad. One of the ministers here. Good to see all of you uh, before Thanksgiving. Hopefully, uh, we'll see you again next week. But if not, safe travels, eat good food, all that good stuff. Um, we're going to continue on with our sermon series. We've only got about four more to go, I think, I believe. What? What's that? Yeah. Um, and if you haven't been with us uh, at all or have forgotten what we've been doing, we've been talking about identity and the whole idea of what, as Christians, we ought to know about our identity. We've been using the in Christ passages, which is 
sort of Paul's favorite phrase to explain uh, who we as Christians are uh, in Christ. And we've gone through a lot of these. We've gotten a little bit more specific in the last couple weeks. Hopefully that's been helpful to you. Hopefully you've been reading through these passages or at least earmarking them uh, for going back and trying to figure this stuff out. Uh, we really don't have a great, in the church today, uh, sense of spiritual formation. We don't talk a lot about it. A lot of us tend to think just because we have a little bit of theology or we've heard a few sermons or studied the Bible a little bit, we're prepped to live this Christian life. Unfortunately, spiritual formation, although uh, is lost in our society, is incredibly important and has been incredibly important to, uh, to theologians up to this point. And that's part of the reason why we've been reading some excerpts from different people. Hopefully you've also taken records of their names so that you can actually go back and study, think through, read something that they've written. Uh, and of course, all of our stuff is online, uh, including the two classes we did on self-denial. Uh, actually, no, we only have one class online. I forgot to record this morning. I just realized it. Dang it. Sorry. Not going to repeat it all anyway. It was a lot of discussion and you missed out. So today, we're going to talk about something a little bit tricky, and I'm going to do my best to not make this difficult because it can be a very difficult topic. Um, and the topic is basically predestination, all right? And uh, so, those of you who have some experience with that, you kind of know what we're talking about. Those who don't, I'll explain at least enough to where uh, you'll have a sense of it. So the chosen title is Identity and Freedom, Freely Chosen. And that kind of extra title, because why not have three titles? Uh, so that you can actually understand this, is we are not destined for death, all right? We are not destined for death. Last week, or maybe the week before that, actually, I think, um, Leslie talked about John Calvin and talked about how, uh, you know, he tends to be the one, uh, along with Zwingli, who gets credited for this idea of predestination and election, and some of what he wrote has been, has sort of survived in its original form in terms of, of our keeping his ideas and following through. Some of them have been very much reformed by the reformed tradition to where you couldn't even really see much of Calvin in some of these thoughts and writings today. But the basic understanding uh, that I think you need to know about predestination is Calvin was writing at a time when there was a lot of uncertainty and war, and Calvin himself was someone who was really uncertain, just in general, and had a lot of anxiety about his relationship with God. And so you can't possibly read some of his ideas about predestination apart from the day and age he was in and the things that he was uh, ultimately writing about. Now fast forward a couple hundred years, and you have the puritanical tradition, the tradition that breaks away from the, the English Catholic Church, comes to the U.S., and they're facing some of the same uncertainties and challenges. They're reformed in their theology, meaning they believe in predestination. And just to give you like a quick sense of this, Chelsea and I were in New York last week. We went to the Tenement Museum, which I'd highly encourage you to do. It's pretty amazing. It's basically a building of about 22 units that was built in the uh, mid-19th no, century, and they tracked some 7,000 people, or they've tracked uh, hundreds of people, Apparently there were 7,000 that lived there uh, over time, and that you can kind of go through and see what one of these tenement apartments would have looked like, 300 square feet, uh, you know, back in 1890, then into 1930, 1940. But this, this tour really, uh, uh, besides just being able to see the kind of conditions people lived in in New York, 
really brought out the idea that so many of these people came to our country and were really, really uncertain about their future. And not just because they were immigrants, but because our society was changing so rapidly during the Industrial Revolution. One of my favorite statistics from the Industrial Revolution is from 1885 to 1915, so 30 years, 30-year period, in 1885, 75% of household goods were made in the house, meaning you made your own like spatulas and you know, cookware and things like that. Kind of crazy, right? By, uh, uh, by 1915, less than 25% of household goods were made in a house. They were made by machines and factories and elsewhere, and just gives you a sense of how much society was changing. Any of you heard of the Protestant work ethic before? No? Yes? Maybe you've taken sociology. One person has heard of their Protestant work ethic? Protestant work ethic? What did you say? <laughs> okay, let me slow down a little bit then. Protestant work ethic? Okay, great. So the Protestant work ethic, according to one of the more famous sociologists, Max Weber, was the idea that Protestants, after the Puritans, were the reason that capitalism sort of made its way into the U.S. and the reason why our society uh, was so successful. And ultimately what they were trying to do was attempt to show that they were part of the elect by having good lives, hardworking lives, people who were morally upstanding, so for, uh, uh, you know, and so on. Okay? So this was probably the most recent uh, movement in our society that saw uh, predestination and reform theology kind of make uh, inroads into, uh, into our society. Now, a lot of people don't believe in this stuff anymore. Uh, and yet, there's kind of a variety of viewpoints all over. So, to back up real quick, and just to give the basic idea of predestination, there's single predestination, which simply means that God has chosen some, elected some, and we don't know how to go to heaven. The idea of double predestination means not only has he chosen some to go to heaven, he has also chosen some to go to hell. Okay? Double predestination. And we could go into the tulip and some of the other theology behind that, but there's no real need to for now. We can simply just say that's the idea of predestination and election. And it's no secret that in Scripture, predestination is talked about. It's addressed. Two, picture, or two scriptures we're going to talk about today are two of the more famous uh, passages about predestination. We've got to make some decision about what we think about this idea of God's electing some chosen people. Most of us have just simply gone to the other side of uh, the uh, extreme viewpoint and become Arminian, which that whole name has its own kind of interesting background, which basically just means people are freely able to choose heaven or hell, do what they want, uh, and, you know, uh, it kind of all comes back to a human choice. What I'm going to suggest to you today is neither one of these viewpoints are very valid. Uh, I will give you another name that's probably one of the more important names if you're interested in, in theology from the last hundred years, and that's Karl Barth. Karl Barth was a reformer in the early part of the 20th century, and he took a lot of Calvin and Zwingli's ideas about predestination and just went to town, okay? Renovated them entirely to the point where after, even calling himself a reformed theologian, said most of our ideas about predestination are completely inaccurate, Here's a much better way of, of looking at this. And I want to read a couple quotes from you really quickly, and then we'll go through the, uh, the sermon here. So, if you want to, you can turn to Ephesians 1. That's going to be where we are at first. But a couple of these quotes from, uh, from Barth about the idea of predestination. All right? Carl Barth or Ephesians 1. There you go. There you go. All right. 
You guys ready? You guys there with your scripture so you can at least listen to this? This one, this quote's not too hard, I don't think, to, uh, to make sense of. All right, it's important to realize that election in Barth's understanding is not a secret decree in the hiddenness of God by which he selects some humans for himself while passing over others, thus passively electing some to perdition or hell or damnation in a manner that is abstracted from Christ. Barth's well-known radical Christological renovation of this doctrine was motivated by his perceived concern that this reformed doctrine of election didn't even provide the assurance most people thought it provided in their faith. Uh, Edward Oakes relates how Barth actually transformed Calvin and Augustine's version of predestination by grounding the election in Christ. He alone is the primal object of the Father's election, talking about Christ. It is in him that the family of man is summoned to election, and the individual summoned to his own personal and private relationship with God only as a part of this family. In the freedom of God's act of election, the Son is both the electing God, a free agent in his nature, as a person within the Trinity, and also the elect man, receiving freedom vicariously for humanity. So to summarize Barth, what he's doing is he's endeavoring to correct deterministic constructions of God's freedom on the one hand, and existentialistic indeterminate constructions of human freedom on the other. Now what, what that ultimately tells you is, number one, if you want to read about predestination and you want to uh, sort of a middle ground view on it, a view that really uh, associates, um, or, or excuse me, implements a lot of study and research up to that point, you need to read Karl Barth. I have a lot of people who talk to me about predestination want to know, uh, uh, he, there you go, you read them, you know, it'll be helpful for you to understand. But ultimately what he's saying is that instead of thinking about us as being elected, Barth took a, a very drastically different approach and talked about God as electing Jesus on our behalf behalf. The election doesn't mean individual election. The election is Christ's election as the man who he's elected to uh, do what he's done through, okay? So uh, this idea of predestination, I think we, we can comfortably say, at least in um, our church, we take a very middle-of-the-road stance like we do with a lot of things, and I want to kind of address that in the scripture that we're talking about. But ultimately, predestination in the way that it's kind of currently thought about, particularly in the Reformed theology, we for the most part reject uh, an Arminianism the same way. All right? So now that you understand a little bit about predestination, we can actually go into these scriptures. So Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. Any quick questions about predestination before we move from the heady stuff to the actual meat of the scripture? Yeah, he's ultimately just saying, you know, so uh, in this Barth quote, is he, what he's doing is he's trying to say, we're, we're not saying that humans have complete free will in these matters, because what does that even mean and look like? And that's the term that's been used a lot by Arminians to say people are purely free to do what they want to do. We're going to talk about that here in a moment. But at the same time, we're not going to paint God off as he does everything he wants, irregardless of what we want to do. Uh, and so he's just basically saying there's this middle ground here, a middle ground that's a paradox that, like so many things in Scripture, we can't possibly understand uh, without a lot of study and, you know, going back to the character of God. That's basically it. So what happens in a lot of these arguments is people are pushed and pulled to one extreme or the other because the extremes, they are easier to talk about. It's, it's easier for me to be extremely this viewpoint or that viewpoint without recognizing the similarities and commonalities. It's the same thing as politics, right? 
it's easier for me to have a Republican mindset because now all the questions are answered for me, or a liberal or democratic mindset because all the questions are answered for me, than to try to make sense of both of these perspectives that seem to have some really good arguments within them. Yeah? Okay. Michael? Good. Any others about predestination? Okay. So Ephesians 1, 11 through 14, here we go. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. Now, this is one of the more important passages about predestination. You'll notice that the evidence for what predestination and election is in these passages are very thin. This is why this argument has been raging for so long, simply because the passages in the scriptures behind them really don't tell us much. And like with anything in scripture that we don't have a lot to go on, we add all of our other stuff on top of that so that we can feel good about our lack of understanding or clarity from the scripture. I think one of the things that's obvious about this passage is Paul, at least in in the beginning, is talking about those apostles who were called, who then later spread the gospel to the Gentiles. The whole idea of God possibly electing certain people like Paul to do certain things and maybe giving them a uh, more intense spiritual moment or calling than he would give the rest of us uh, is kind of an interesting idea and one I've pondered about and thought about and don't really have any <clears throat> uh, you know, uh, great answers to if that's possible or not. But Paul sees himself as being predestined here for the sake of others. All right, so in him we have li- uh, believed... Whoa, I missed a... In, ooh, where did I go? There we go. It's a teeny tiny Bible with these thin pages. Having believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So I'm going to read that again because I think this is... Yeah, here we go. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. My first point of two here is just he knows what he is doing in choosing you. He knows what he's doing in choosing you. I do not believe that God chooses some and doesn't choose others. I just simply don't believe that. I don't think the scripture really makes that point at all. There's too many other passages that talk about God being patient, waiting for all to be saved, waiting to give everybody a chance to know him. Of course, then that begs the question, why do some people not choose God? Well, number one, that's the wrong question. Because we didn't even choose God. And this is where a lot of Reformed theology is helpful for Protestants to understand what role our agency or choice had in coming to Christ in the first place. Jesus tells us that God calls and the Spirit enables us to just accept that call of God. But we in no way chose God. And as Christians, we ought to just remove that completely from our vocabulary as if we looked at a bunch of options and we decided or chose to follow Christ. The scripture doesn't talk about it like that. It talks about God choosing us and us simply responding to that choice. And that's really interesting. 
as Americans who believe in individuality and who believe that we have, you know, more or less the power within us to do anything that we set our minds to, the idea that we didn't choose God, but God chose us, is a little bit of a slap in the face to our understanding of our own free will and how to do things. Now, I don't even need to illustrate this much in terms of how anyone even makes a choice, because your choices are full of, you know, experiences you've had in the past, the environment around you, what's available to you. But simply put, God did not, uh, we did not choose God, God chose us. And our identity in Christ is one of chosen people in Christ. So, why then did some not respond to this choice of God's, and some do? This is the question we, 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 uh, we sort of get, right? And there are all kinds of practical and philosophical reasons for this. The most practical from the scripture is some people just haven't heard. I mean, they really haven't heard. They have not heard God's word to them. This is one of the more important things that we've been given in terms of ministry is the ministry of telling people God's good news, the good news of gospel. Now, plenty of people have heard about Christians, they've heard about Christianity, maybe they've heard some theology, but the idea that someone's really heard about who God is is always going to be a practical obstacle for people to ultimately choose to be accepted by him. Romans 10, 14 talks about this. You know, how are they going to believe if they haven't heard? How are they going to hear if no one goes and actually preaches it to them? Which brings us to the second one. Some who have heard just simply haven't believed. The scripture says that there's many a people who have heard the word of God, but simply not believed it. Didn't think it was true. Weren't ready to put trust in it. For a variety of other reasons, who knows. Mark 4 talks in a parable form about why some choose, why some stay. And one of the things he talks about at the very beginning about the seed that was snatched away is the idea that the world takes away, and he uses the term Satan, the world overwhelms the word being spoken to us. So someone gets the word of God, but immediately all the thoughts of does God really exist, and is this really where I ought to be, and all the things that I've heard simply overwhelm my ability to respond to that word, and the word is sort of lost. Again, reminds us how important constant and continual ministry in the lives of other people are. Because just because a word has been planted doesn't mean that word had any time to grow roots and, uh, and actually you know, form into the life of someone. But I think one of the biggest reasons in my mind, and Eugene Peterson talks about this in uh, one of the first books he ever wrote called The Long Obedience in the Same Direction, And he just says, until people get fed up enough with the world, they won't turn to God. Pretty strong claim. And I'm not for sure that's all of our experience, or even if that holds true, but it's an interesting one nonetheless. And uh, this lie that we have the freedom to do whatever we want and be whoever we want, when people finally realize that that's a lie, they may turn to hearing the word of God. So these are just a couple examples, guys, practical and philosophical, of why some simply don't. And these are just the ones that have something to do with our own agency, our own role. There's plenty of other stuff that we could put on the side of the spectrum that has nothing to do with that person's role. Traumatic experiences, bad experiences in the church with other Christians, uh, the message being presented in ways that aren't helpful at all or aren't even remotely accurate, and portraying Christian as pretty much uh, Christianity as any other religion. The list goes on and on. But the point here is that we don't have to worry 
about God's choosing because God is the one doing the choosing. We're not worrying if we're the one that's accept, or, 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 that we're choosing God or if other person's choosing God or not. We believe that God is choosing and has chosen every human he's ever made to be in relationship with him. And that's really, really important, and it's good news. And some of us, uh, you know, we struggle with that, right? We struggle, well, why am I the one? Or, or have I really accepted it? Or why not my brother or my sister or my friend? Uh, how much of this is about them and how much of it is about the world around them? And we ask all these questions that have to do with our own individual choice and forget the fact that God has chosen all of us and he knows what he's doing in his choosing. And we've got to just believe that. Wherever you are in the map of who's going to make it and who's not, this isn't about God arbitrarily and in a hidden process, not open to mankind, picking and choosing at random who he likes and who he doesn't like. I'm sorry, but that's just not going to work. God knows what he's doing in his choosing of us. Ephesians 3, 1 through 3. It's actually going to be 1 through 13. I missed a 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of the Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, and has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. The mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose which is accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you which are your glory. This passage is really kind of tough to understand. Um, But I think the main gist of it is he's saying none of this stuff is hidden. God has revealed it in these last days, revealed his plan, revealed his manifold wisdom for all people everywhere. And therefore, this is not something that we ought to, like in days past, it shouldn't make us afraid of God. We should know God's plan and we should be able to approach him with freedom and confidence. Not wondering, not thinking if we'll be the one that he's destined to hell or you know, maybe destined to heaven, not knowing God's made his plan manifest, we can now approach him with the confidence and security that comes from knowing he's the one that chooses, not from knowing I'm the one that has been chosen, okay? Knowing that I'm part of some elect group, I'm a part of some, some uh, specific good group of people, or at least we'll try to figure out if I am or not, we have that surety and confidence in Christ. So the second point then, therefore, we can approach God free and confident. One of the things I think we worry about is losing our faith. Guys, you don't have to worry about losing your faith. You aren't going to lose your faith. This isn't like, uh, you know, or it is a lot like falling in love. You can't fall out of love, 
That's just, that's not possible. This is Disney language here. You don't fall out of love with someone. You choose not to love them, and you can choose not to accept the love that they give. But you don't fall out of love as if it's some unnatural process that just happens one day. And we've been given surety in Christ that we're not going to lose our faith. Nothing is going to take our faith away. And this is really important because this is the kind of certainty that they were looking for and had to go too far to ultimately get that kind of security when there it was in the scripture all along. That we don't lose our faith. So then, of course, the same question, why do some wander away from the faith then? And this is a question I think that's a lot closer to our heart because we know people in our midst at any given time who've wandered away from the faith. Well, the simple reformed answer to this would have been, well, they never had faith in the first place. Hogwash, that's crazy. Come on. That doesn't even make sense. In giving us some will and agency in the matter, God certainly doesn't force us into some contractual relationship with him even when we've decided we don't trust or accept him anymore. (laughs) That just doesn't make any sense. And the idea that that would somehow threaten God's sovereignty is such a strange idea. God has done what he's done. He is sovereign. He elects us. We simply accept that election or not, but the choosing has already been done. So why do some wander away? Well, again, practical and philosophical questions here. Romans 10, uh, haven't heard, haven't believed. It's very possible for people to be in the church of God and still not have really heard and understand the message of, of the gospel, or at least not to have believed. People love to come here for friends, and, you know, belonging, and maybe some good business transactions. I don't know. I mean, that's kind of why I'm here. <laughs> Built a business on you all. So, you know, it's great. Um, but can still be among us and not have really ever heard or believed. And one of the things that Jesus says there in that, uh, that passage in Mark 4 is he's talking about them being ever hearing uh, uh, but never perceiving, you know. And, uh, or understanding. It's talking very much about people who have been surrounded by the good news, but somehow have never really let it uh, sink in or make sense to them. Mark 4 goes on all kinds of things that talk about faith being, uh, you know, choosing to sort of walk away from the faith. Things like the world's worries, other pursuits. I would say something like no community. I mean, we're not going to have much root if we don't have any community. Uh, things like no growth. You know, you can be at a stagnant place in your faith for so long that you don't realize maybe that you've chosen not to pursue your relationship with God. And here you are just kind of five years later realizing you have no personal relationship with God. I talked to someone just a month ago. This is where he was at. And he decided to throw himself into service and activity and see if that would help. But at the end of the day, he had lost connection with God. Didn't uh, feel God's presence, didn't believe that God was really working, And so, you know, these things, I think we, instead of looking at them as the most terrible, awful things, sometimes they are, sometimes it's just honest that people assess their relationship with God so that they can decide there has to be a pretty big change here if you decide to come back or whatever the case may be. And some people simply just need help understanding that doubts or a season of, you know, not feeling God's presence isn't going to, it doesn't mean you've lost your faith. This is, read Psalms, this is the ebb and flow of spirituality and things like that. I think one of the most important ones of ones I already mentioned, but I'll mention it again, is faith association. Faith by association, sorry. 
people can be in a relationship with the church, but not in a relationship with God. And when they figure that out, uh, sometimes it takes a, a sort of a, a split or a separation, and Paul talks about that. Um, and so that's a, another reason there. I want to read Psalm 27 to kind of end us off, and I always read these, uh, these psalms that I've picked based on uh, what we've been uh, kind of talking about, trying to make sense of this, uh, this free and confidence, freedom and confidence we have in Christ uh, in sort of a psalm way. So Psalm uh, 27, we'll read it in the message, and then I'll uh, wrap up here with any questions you have. Light, space, zest, that's God. Psalms, and they're meant to kind of make you laugh and cry. And uh, if we read it in the New Revised Version, you'd all just probably be there with your face like, what? What is happening? Anyway, so with him on my side, I'm fearless, afraid of no one and nothing. When vandal hordes ride, ready to eat me alive, those bullies and tusks fall flat on their faces. When besieged, I'm calm as a baby. When all hell breaks loose, I'm collected and cool. I'm asking God for one thing and only one thing, to live with him in his house my whole life long. I'll contemplate his beauty, I'll study at his feet. That's the only quiet, secure place in a noisy world, the perfect getaway, far from the buzz of traffic. God holds me head and shoulders above all who try to pull me down. I'm headed for this place to offer anthems that will raise the roof. Already I'm singing God's songs, I'm making music to God. Listen, God, I'm calling at the top of my lungs. Be good to me, answer me. When my heart whispered, seek God, my whole being replied, I'm seeking him. Don't hide from me now. You've always been right there for me. You don't turn your back on me now. You don't throw me out or abandon me. You've always kept the door open. My father and mother walked out and left me, but God took me in. Point down your highway, God. Direct me along a well-lighted street. Show my enemies whose side you're on. Don't throw me to the dogs, those liars who are out to get me, filling the air with their treats. I'm sure now I'll see God's goodness in the exuberant earth. Stay with God. Take heart. Don't quit. I'll say it again. Stay with God. Guys, we're freely chosen in Christ. He knows what he's doing with all people. We have no worry of losing our faith, our salvation, or any of those things. We simply, day by day, continue to accept the deposit that he's given us in the Holy Spirit. The deposit that tells us that something is coming, and we can have freedom and confidence in Christ uh, knowing that. Questions about this idea of predestination or any other things I talked about before we uh, break for uh, communion. Well, so uh, the question is, Paul talks about predestination. The theology wasn't around, so what is he talking about ultimately? I mean, that is the debate of predestination uh, in the first place, is what is Paul saying? Because uh, Jesus doesn't really talk about it at all. Um, you know, so there's a, t- a number of scriptures. I mean, actually one of the most famous passages is Roman 10's where, Roman 10, where Paul says, I loved uh, uh, Esau, but no, I loved Jacob, but I hated Esau. People take that as a predestination passage, and you're like, what? Uh, it just shows how much we read back into Scripture some of the things that, uh, that we've been taught or learned. Um, I'm, I'm totally on Karl, Bar- Karl Barth's side on this. I think he absolutely is one of the most brilliant scholars in the last couple hundred years. I think as a reformer himself, he grew up in that environment and understood the theology better than anybody and did what he felt like God was telling you know, him uh, to do in writing about predestination in a way that made more sense of what it actually was and not what it had to become, uh, as I tried to explain at the beginning, more of a sociocultural uh, religion than it had become a real you know, uh, scriptural religion. 
immigrants were trying to kind of, Protestants in particular, separate themselves from Catholic Irish folks coming in and Lutheran Germans and all that other stuff. And, uh, and so Barth was trying to kind of bring people back to the scripture and the importance of how we can find certainty uh, and knowing that God predestined Christ, and that's what predestination and election is. And that's what he believed Paul was saying. So, if you're, again, if you're interested, there's a number of like shorter articles about Barth and how he kind of thinks about this. And I think it's very, very helpful uh, getting you outside of the predestination, the Arminian versus Calvinist viewpoint. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, this is a little bit tricky. So Max Weber basically wrote the Protestant work ethic. And since then, and it's still one of the most famous works of his, but it's been argued that uh, it, it wasn't actually Protestantism that brought about capitalism. Um, I don't really care to make a, you know, a, not, not a statement. <laughs> it's like I'm being interviewed. Um, make, have a position on it. All I know is that in the last hundred years, as people were experiencing the uncertainty of the Industrial Revolution, and Protestant, you know, Europeans started to be uh, pushed out of neighborhoods, or at least, I guess they weren't really pushed out, they were more like running out, um, by German Luther, uh, Lutherans, by you know, Italian and Irish Catholics. Um, this sort of like helped them maintain that wasp dominance in society by ba- basically saying either one of two things. One is my hard work and diligence and the money that I'm making and the opportunities are a sign that I'm one of God's elect. Or I'm elect, so I'm going to work really hard because I know that, you know, I mean, you know, I, sh- I owe this to God kind of thing. So it just, it, you know, one of the things I love about sociology is it just talks about how in most societies economics is the main driving force behind religion and politics and all these things. It's not the other way around. And I think that, uh, yeah, the predestination resurgence in the late 19th century was more due to um, wasps feeling like they were being attacked <laughs> from the outside. Okay. Wasp, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. Those brilliant ones of us who are only from England, Scotland, or Wales. So technically in 1900s, if you were from anywhere other than those three areas, you were not a real white person. So I'm sorry for you Germans and Italians and, you know, all those other, you know, mongoloid white breeds. (laughs) Uh, Wasps, here to stay. (laughs) Bay Bay. (laughs) No, no, not good. <laughs> Get, getting a lot of head shakes for that one. All right, delete, delete, delete. <laughs> Maybe one or two more questions about the idea of predestination. Yeah, great. Yeah, sure. Um, well, that's tough. I mean, you know, because most people really are kind of hard line one uh, place or the other. The question was, how do we foster unity and how do we determine non-negotiables? Because this is a salvation issue, in all honesty, uh, it becomes a very difficult place. Uh, for many of the reform folks that I know, particularly in this area, they are staunch reformers. And many of them have never even read Calvin or Zwingli. They've read people who've read people who've read them. And their tulip model, in my mind, is a house of cards. One pulls out, the rest of the house comes tumbling down. And that's my criticism of it. But Arminianism is no more helpful because it's basically just a broad blanket that says more of a reaction to Calvinism than it is anything else. It's just, well, we don't believe that, so we'll just believe everything but that. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and that's not going to be any more helpful. Uh, and Arminianism, not, not, not only that, but Arminianism, um, I mean, you know, it, it gives us way too much agency and that we have somehow chosen God. And the scripture just does not present it like that. Try to find 
you chose God or we chose God in, in Scripture. It's just not there. The focus is on God choosing us. And so the idea that we have some pivotal role to play other than just accepting that uh, has been overplayed, I think, by a lot of our Arminians. How you do that practically and what's non-negotiable, man, it's just hard. To me, I think the most helpful thing, the thing that Barth ultimately did, was he brought it back to Christ. The weird thing about predestination, until you get into the whole substitutionary atonement, all that weird stuff, is it, it, it presents, presents a God who just arbitrarily decides in a hidden place who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. But that's not how Jesus taught things at all. And so I think there's this huge disconnect for people who want to be uh, reformed in their viewpoint between this God that they understand, which is much more like an Old Testament God and how we tend to think about it, and Barth brought people back to Jesus. As always, I think that's got to be the unity that, we, uh, that we, we bring. And Jesus certainly didn't seem to be going based on an agenda of who was saved and who wasn't. <laughs> I mean, he called the disciples and apostles, sure, um, but he didn't seem to have some agenda in terms of places to go that here's the elect. And you would think he was talking about if, if these are the elect, here I'm going to start with the elect and, and move on from there and just one like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I think one of the things that's really interesting um, about uh, talking to people who are new in faith about salvation issues is that, you know, it, for the most part, you've got to be pretty broad. Uh, most people don't come to Christ necessarily with that much information or baggage about salvation. I think the bigger issue, and I think it's a good issue, and I think it's actually one of the most, most pivotal issues about predestination, is the idea of what does it say about a God who arbitrarily creates people or creates people and then arbitrarily chooses some to die and some not to. Um, you just can't get around that question. And the answer has often been, well, we don't know how God works. He works in mysterious ways. But man, that's just a, a pretty big obstacle uh, regardless of what the scripture says. I mean, if the scripture was really clear about it, that'd be one thing. But since it's not, even just asking the character question of what does that say about God? To me, what it says is he's no, not much different than any other God that's ever kind of come down the pipe who just randomly chooses people based on what sort of works for them. And, um, and, and you know, I'm, I'm very much sim- oversimplifying the Reformed argument to that. But for now, I think most people, if that's what they've heard of, they've probably heard of that, that idea. And then, you know, there's sort of a neo-reformed um, theology that basically says some are elected and then also some get to choose. <laughs> it's kind of the easy way of sort of going a little bit more towards the middle. How that works, I, I don't really know. Not, not Tulip, it's just, Tulip's been there for a long time. It's just neo-reformation. It's basically you, you get two options, elect and choice. So some get to choose, but some elect. It's really fun. Oh, Tulip, we can't talk about Tulip. It's take too long. Yeah, just look it up. If you really want to know, you know, the kind of basics of Reformation theology, just look up tulip, not the flower. One more, and that's it. Mm-hmm. Yep. People in a village far from uh, away. Listen, guys, the best possible explanation of that is what we talked about this morning. God knows what he's doing in choosing us. And um, he just does. He knows what he's choosing. I think some people have, have made the argument that, well, hell's not eternal, it's not permanent, so they'll just go to die. And then some people will just die, and they lived, and then they, they died. And I'm, and I'm thinking in that one, I want to be like, all right, that's sort of strange. <laughs> like, good for you that you don't believe hell's eternal and that some people just die. And I kind of get that, that you're basically taking away the sort of hellfire fear. We don't want people to you know, fear their way into following God. We want them to love their way into knowing God and want heaven to be there and not the, you know, positive reinforcement, not negative. But at the same time, that still doesn't answer a lot of questions for me. What answers those questions is that I've got to get to a point where I know that what the scripture is saying is true 
and that God has chosen us. And if there's any mystery in this process, the mystery is how the heck he's going to bring people who really have never heard or have had such strong obstacles and oppositions to faith that it wasn't even really possible for them. Uh, and Paul talks about that a little bit at the beginning of Romans, but it's still really unclear, and we just don't know. And there's, that's a whole other topic, right? Pluralism and the idea of how optimistic you are. <laughs> uh, literally, the terms for that are uh, agnostic, um, and uh, you're either agnostic or you're a positive, you're an optimist, or you're a pessimist when it comes to salvation. It's really funny how these academic words are just normal words to use. But you'd have to look into that on your, uh, on your own. All right, we're going to take communion here, and we do communion a little bit strangely, and we're actually going to do it quite a bit strangely today because uh, we're hitting on our 20th year of being together as a family of churches. And uh, this is a 2020 vision uh, that uh, Ronnie kind of laid out in 1998, sort of late 98. And we have, as a part of our network of churches, uh, four, five other churches now, as East Plano started, and 12 or 13, I don't know how many focus you know, ministries. And so one of the things we want to do next year as we look forward to 2050, okay, our 2050 vision, so to speak, is we wanted for all the churches to give a short message uh, that other churches and ministries can play at their uh, gathering just to kind of see all the different faces and people from the different ministries. And so over the course of the next year, we should have like some 18 or 19 videos that we'll kind of show whenever we remember to do it. And they'll just be short 15, 20 second, maybe 30 seconds at the most, uh, little introductions and, you know, shout out hellos uh, to the, the other churches and ministries. And so we're going to record sort of a pilot one of those right now. Uh, and so how we're going to do this is I'm probably just going to stand here. Josh is going to uh, record. We'll do a little ditty and then we'll pan the camera around and you guys can do whatever you feel the need to do. Um, and then we'll dismiss the communion from there. So if you want to just like pop up and dance or, you know, just say hi, be awkward, you do you. Uh, but remember, so real quick, because this seems like maybe it's not related to communion, but I'm definitely going to relate it back to communion because I very much think it's uh, sort of related to communion. One of the strongest uh, statements Paul makes about people uh, not doing communion right is them not thinking about the community and the good of the community in their communion. And I think what's really important for us in a church like this that seems large enough that we recognize and remember that not only do we have a whole lot of other people in Denton who are Christians and we share that communion meal with them, we have a lot of people who have even more of a vested interest in who we are in Garland and in Arlington and Plano and the various ministries around, and they're the reasons why we're here. And so to be able to really celebrate them and love on them is part of the reason why we do communion the way we do it is because we want to have people together and we want them to be thinking about Christ and treating each other uh, in a way that, uh, that re um, really recognizes who he is and his character and not just sit silently like sort of trying to shame ourselves into remembering who Jesus is as an individual person. So we're not trying to be sacrilegious. We're trying to celebrate communion in a way that's really meaningful for the community. All right? I'm going to say a prayer and then uh, we'll do this video real quick, and then we'll, uh, we'll take uh, communion, and then come on back. Lord God, thank you so much for choosing us. You really did. You chose us. There's so many ways this could play out. But you are a God that loves us deeply. A God that knows who we are, and yet still chooses us. Doesn't choose the best and the brightest. 
but continually chooses people and uses people in the scripture who, like Paul says, are low people. And you do that because you're a good God. Thank you, Jesus, for being the one elected, for freely giving up your life so that we may have life. We commune together in your name and treat each other uh, as you would have us treat each other in remembrance of you. Amen. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.